PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to the CrickCast from Physical Therapy. Each month, PTJ Editor-in-Chief Dr. Rebecca Crick offers her take on the articles appearing in this month's PTJ. Here is Rebecca Crick. Hello, this is Becky Craig, and I am delighted to invite you to look over the May issue of Physical Therapy. There are 12 spectacular articles this month, and I hope that there's one for each of you. Before I begin, I would really like to take a moment to thank editorial board members. You may not know that there are 25 editorial board members and hundreds of reviewers who help to prepare these manuscripts, and their level of effort is absolutely incredible. In addition, we have a statistical consulting team, we have a committee on health policy and ethics, and we have another task force on linking evidence and practice. They are just an incredible group of people, and I want to thank them. And importantly are the incredible staff that we have at PTJ. They work tirelessly to make us do a good job and to help us move forward. So thanks to all of you. The first article is a LEAP article or a linking evidence and practice article. That's written by Paul Minkin and Joshua Cleland. The paper is about a 32-year-old woman with chronic neck pain and headaches. The literature is reviewed using the Cochrane Review, and the two authors take the information from the Cochrane Review and see if it's relevant in coming up with a clinical practice application. So I really hope that you will find this article of interest. The next research report is one by Circuit et al. from the University of La Trobe and the University of Melbourne in Australia. This is a systematic review, and before I talk about it, I'm going to refer you to the March issue where there's a randomized control trial by Macedo et al. looking at motor control exercises and graded exercises, and there's a podcast available related to that. So that's a very nice context to read this particular paper that appears in this issue. This paper is a systematic review, and I hope that it's viewed as a landmark because what they did was, rather than just look at the effect of exercise versus motor control or different kinds of intervention on low back pain, they really began with the premise that we should be examining subpopulations of patients with low back pain. So their subpopulation was associated with the presence of centralization, which for those of you who don't know, means that the signs and symptoms move proximally or are abolished when the spine is loaded in a particular fashion. What was interesting is because of it being a subgroup, the patients were so clinically heterogeneic that it was not possible to do a meta-analysis. So rather than that being a traditional systematic meta-analysis, this is a qualitative evaluation of a number of papers. The next paper, Clinical Decision-Making and Exercise Prescription for Fall Prevention by Haas and all, is going to be discussed in a podcast with Kathy Gilbody, one of our editors serving as the moderator. So I encourage you to listen to the podcast with Carrie Haynes and Shumway Cook and Kathy Gilbody. In brief, it's a qualitative study that looks at the different types of exercise prescriptions that are given in relationship to the expertise of the physical therapist. I really enjoyed reading this article and hope you do as well. The next paper is by a group in the Netherlands. 
It looks at the changes in body weight after total arthroplasty, and it examines both short-term, meaning one year after total hip arthroplasty, and approximately five years after total hip arthroplasty. Basically, one year after, there's not a change in body weight, and four and a half years later, there's a decrease in body weight for some of those who were obese. The authors suggest a need for weight management as part of the intervention with total hip arthroplasty. The paper by McCallum and DeAngelis is about direct access and the factors that affect physical therapist practice in the state of Ohio. This is a really nice follow-up to a paper that appeared in the February issue by Michael Schumacher discussing direct access in Michigan. In the February paper, the discussion was factors that limit the passing of legislation related to direct access. This paper describes the physical therapists across the state and their interest and ability and types of direct access that are being used. I really found this very insightful, and I hope that you do as well. I think that this and several of the papers that are in this issue reflect really nicely on the article that appeared in the April issue by Diane Jetty and Dion Jewell about the use of quality indicators. If you listen to their podcast, one of the issues that they raise related to quality indicators is that perhaps physical therapists aren't used to or haven't had enough experience with the direct access role, but rather they're used to having patients referred from physicians and therefore are not doing screening. In this issue, there are several examples of how physical therapists have the opportunity to screen for and refer out or screen for and then provide a very thoughtful clinical intervention. So I think there's a nice link between that paper and this issue. The next paper by Silkwood Scherer et al. is a paper about hippotherapy, and I am delighted to see this paper in our journal. Hippotherapy, for those of you who don't know, is balance training, for example, on a horse. Despite the variability in the sample, the authors found a significant difference in the outcome measures that they selected. So I think this is really the beginning of research that we have long needed in this particular area. Congratulations to the authors. The next paper is Construct Validity of Clinical Tests for Aller Ligament Integrity. The aller ligaments have been described as limiting occipital atlanto axial rotation and lateral flexion. And so the authors were very interested in seeing whether there was actual movement when the special test indicated movement. So this is a test that was done with imaging. I think this is a really interesting, innovative approach to determining validity. And what they found was that both side bending and rotation stress testing did result in an increase in length of the contralateral ligament. So I encourage you to read this. I think it's an innovative and thoughtful paper. The next paper is by Mossberg and Fertini at the University of Texas and the Transitional Learning Center, both in Galveston. The authors look at the use of six-minute walk test for endurance capacity testing in persons with traumatic brain injury. First of all, it's really interesting to see how many different ways the six-minute walk test has been used in the literature. Um, It was certainly designed to look at endurance capacity, and that's what these authors have done with it. These authors look at both the physiologic cost index as well as the six-minute walk test. And what they found was that the six-minute walk test correlated well with peak VO2. 
So I think this is a valid test for those of you who have not been able to think about measuring endurance in your patients with traumatic brain injury. The next paper is a technical report written by a group of physicians who are from Italy. The lead author is also affiliated with a hospital in Luzon, Switzerland. These authors talk about the use of a hip flexion assist orthoses in helping patients who have weak hip flexors following stroke. The case reports this month, as usual, turn out to be remarkably interesting to me. The first is the case where a person comes in with shoulder complaint, and the expectation is that the person is an athlete who has a problem with rotator cuff, and it turns out that with careful history taking and also looking at the response to exercise, the clinician suspected that there was something underlying the production of the tendinopathy that was being treated. So the authors ended up referring this patient back to the physician and the diagnosis of Lyme disease was made. So again, I think this emphasizes the role that physical therapists play in continually monitoring the patient's response, determining whether or not the response is as predicted and when not goes back and analyzes what the other potential problems might be. So thank you very much. The next case report is by a group from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and it reports the use of visual and proprioceptive feedback to improve gait speed and spatiotemporal symmetry following chronic stroke. This is a case series report. Again, I would like to compliment the authors on the careful use of outcome measures, and it's nice to see the report go beyond a single patient in this case and talk about the results and outcomes in two patients. The final paper is by a group from West Virginia University and the University of Buffalo. This is an extremely thoughtful paper on the role that physical therapists can play in promoting smoking cessation. The authors do a spectacular job listing all of the effects of smoking on physiologic systems and then talk about the role that we can play in trying to promote patients and our colleagues in smoking cessation. So thank you very much. I really think this is a thoughtful paper. So in summary, this is an absolutely, as usual, amazing issue. I think this issue brings up several very important points. One is the role of physical therapists in referring to other colleagues. Second is the careful role the physical therapists play in their clinical decision-making. So thank you, authors, and thank you, editorial board members and reviewers, for creating this issue. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you have a question for Dr. Craik, email ptj at apta.org and be sure to include CraikCast in the subject line. This is a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net.